0: Welcome to the podcast where we clear up common misconceptions in biology and evolution
1: and learn that all the answers to evolution's mysteries are simple in the way that everything is astoundingly complicated.
0: Welcome to Darwin's Black Book.
1: to darwin's black book my name is tom land zoologist researcher and wildlife filmmaker and
0: i'm rebecca white i'm a phd researcher in evolution and genetics at the university of exeter
1: and welcome to the third and final part of our seasonal specials shorter than usual although we seem to be getting longer each time so there's that so much Um, to say becca what have we covered so far and what have we got today
0: So parts one and two are available now to listen to. We had Christmas critters, where we talked about our favourite festive animals, which were the robin and the reindeer. And then we talked about festive botanicals. So any kind of plant that reminded us of Christmas, and we chose the Christmas tree and the mistletoe. But this time we thought we'd step away from the typical Western Christmas and look at what else is associated with this time of year in different cultures.
1: And if this all goes to plan, then this is being released on Christmas Eve. And i can't wait for christmas it's all admittedly very different to other years but it's the end of 2020 uh and it just been a year yeah enjoy christmas for what it is and and yeah
0: we really hope you enjoy these episodes because we've really enjoyed making them
1: and i have really enjoyed researching this episode and going in depth about some really awesome things linking folklore history evolutionary biology i've honestly been happy as a clam it's been great so It's no surprise. It's
0: true. It even says in his notes, (laughs) I am as happy as a clam.
1: (laughs) So it's no surprise that the entire world hasn't always celebrated Christmas, Uh, which kind of arrived in the mid-19th, 20th centuries, spreading across the world. Before that, there was a lot of animals in different cultures being celebrated across the winter period. And... Well, some of the things that I went through before settling on my animal. In Mongolia, you've got the festival of Sargansar, which is literally meaning the white month. Celebration of, it's the Lunar New Year, the end of winter, movement into spring, and all the steppe tribes basically have a huge feast and celebrate their horses, for which their whole entire lives revolve around. Also in Mongolia, at the in the Gobi Desert, you have the Gobi Camel Festival, which... Oh gosh, this is going on the bucket list. Basically, it's snowing in the middle of a desert and all the Bactrian camels are there in their full on winter plumage. Plumage? Pelage, is that the white word?
0: That's not plumage.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Pelage. Um and yes, yeah, snowing in the middle of this desert and they and they just show off their camels. It sounds nuts. Anyway, then you've got the Mayan festivals where they celebrate the the sun god and the feathered serpent, which is more famously known as uh, in, in Aztec as Quetzalcoatl. It's a very animal-oriented culture, the the Mayan and Aztec cultures. But I managed to settle on one of I think my favorite animals full time, that has strong links with Inuit and Finnish cultures, but I'll get to those at the end. But it's the arctic fox, Vulpes lagapus. An absolutely incredible animal. And the more I looked into this, the more I realized just how incredible it was at adapting for a winter freezing cold. Environment, so it lives across all of the northern landmasses, uh, all the way from Alaska to Siberia. Uh, average it about half a metre long in the springtime and summertime, it's got this beautiful tawny uh, coat. It's called a morph, so it's, it's the summer morph, and then you get your winter morph, which is the most famous one. It's the purest snow white. It looks a bit like a snowball when it's running around on these tiny little short <laughs> stubby legs. It's it's. Are
0: they so when they, I think I saw it on a, a wildlife documentary, when they hunt, they rise up into the air and then shove their faces headfirst into the snow and you just see their little tail.
1: Into the snow, headfirst. Wiggling around. Yes. And that is one of the most incredible parts of their evolution and adaptation. It, it, it's fantastically interesting. What well, actually is the mechanics behind that? But quick question, without reading my notes, which you have up on the screen, <laughs> what is a collective noun for a group of Arctic foxes?
0: Oh, is that different to the collective noun for normal foxes?
1: What is the collective noun for a normal foxes?
0: I don't, I don't know. I don't know why I said that like I did know. Um, a snowball? A fluff? A cloud?
1: All of those things. are. are they, that's better. A cloud, a cloud of arctic foxes. It should be. It's actually a skulk.
0: Oh, that's quite nice.
1: <laughs> the skulker foxes, because they kind of pootle around on their own, skulking around looking for scraps of food. Um, But they are, they're really feisty little survivors in one of the harshest conditions in the world, and they thrive. So what are they adapting to? What conditions are they evolving for? Well, their minimum critical temperature, which is basically the lowest temperature they can survive at, is minus seven degrees, which is cold. But considering that the Arctic winter can plummet to minus 40 on occasion, which theoretically they can survive... For, for a very short amount of time, basically by curling up into a ball underground, which is if you just imagine a snowball of fur, that is effectively what that is. It's a cushion, but they tend to be more adapted to surviving at minus 10. And in these conditions, they're surviving more on their pelage and their fur itself. So they have two layers. They have the inner layer which is very very thick very short fur which traps air kind of what your hair does when you get cold it sticks up an end that traps warm air next to your skin so you don't lose heat so easily and they do that that's their inside layer of air and then the outside layer of hair is much longer much kind of softer and that's the stuff which prevents wind chill and ice buildup, and which you can make coats out of which is why they're being hunted which is kind of sad
0: i have a question may i interrupt yes I'm not sure if this came up in your research or if you've had to... You might have to Google it quickly. Um, So when I talked about the reindeer in episode 4.1 of the Christmas special in Merry Critters, I talked about the reindeer and that some of their fur is hollow for insulation to keep them warm. Do you know if active foxes have the same adaptation as the reindeer?
1: So after quickly going to check my facts to make sure i don't just spread lies about the arctic fox yes they're 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 very short fur which keeps in the heat that is indeed hollow just to increase the level of heat which they can trap and warm them up even more so they're basically in their own in their own little coat which is quite fantastic
0: so to get into some proper deep evolution um the reindeer and the arctic fox do you reckon they would have evolved that adaptation independently is this an example of convergent evolution?
1: Convergent evolution across the deer and the fox.
0: And many other animals, I'm sure.
1: Because the, the uh, polar bear also has a hollow fur.
0: None of them are that closely related, are they?
1: So that is an idea of, of the more extreme the conditions, the more extreme the uh, cold the conditions, the more you want to warm up. And, and convergent evolution is different groups of animals basically coming up with the same solution to the same problem via a different method.
0: Yes, yeah, the same adaptation evolved completely independently from one another. In the same environment.
1: Woo evolution.
0: That's so cool. And sorry, carry on.
1: <laughs> so ninety nine percent of them are pure white and they change to the brown tawny colour in the summer. But there is a blue morph blue. which makes up that one per cent, which is a kind of slate grey, ah. slate grey blue. And they go slightly blue in the summer and then when they go to winter again they kind of retain that grey, kind of slightly lighter colour as well. So but they hardly change at all, which is quite extraordinary. But to say how much the fur increases it from summer to winter it is a 140% increase in the amount of fluff that's how as how warm
0: fluff density
1: <laughs> fluff density increases the other physical adaptations that they have to this environment include foot pads so most uh canids so they're the dog family have um little paws but they don't bear paws toes on on the soles of their feet the arctic fox is the only canid to have fur on their feet, on the soles of their feet. Basically, so when they touch the ice, they don't freeze. And they have this fantastic system, which basically makes their legs go colder. So their feet, when they're touching the ice constantly, don't lose as much heat. Everything is about retaining as much heat as possible in in these freezing conditions. So as well as shorter feet, basically a smaller surface area, less heat lost. And the ears, they're much smaller as well. Uh, no less good because they are incredible sense of hearing. They can hear lemmings uh, beneath five to six inches of snow when they're running around little tunnels in the ice. And they can, that that's the point when they basically leap and, and jump straight it's downwards.
0: <laughs> right down <laughs> but, to the exact right spot.
1: And with smaller ears... You can, A, more streamlined when going into snow and you don't lose heat because ears lose a lot of heat. There's blood vessels right next to the surface and you don't want that. So smaller ears, less heat lost. The tail as well, I mentioned it previously, but that's a much thicker tail than you normally get in, in foxes. So they it's its use is as a blanket they literally curl up and put it over themselves to warm up they have the fastest reproduction of any carnivore quick response to good weather or more lemmings they really like lemmings uh, typically they have five to nine in a year but they have as many as 25 baby arctic foxes in one year for a one How? mom which is a lot bananas amounts of babies so they're really really quick to respond it's good weather quickly let's make as many as possible (laughs) (laughs) is how that works so i'm i'm kind of buzzing through the physical uh adaptations as well as the diet because there's a really it gets really cool um when we we start looking into their hearing and that dive function should come in just a second so they eat when they're mainly in land small lemmings which are basically just okay so i said the arctic fox was a half meter long fl- furball fluffball imagine the lemming as something that would fit in the palm of your hand its head and its body are basically one entity with just it just goes around on these tiny little legs it is it is a lovely kind of gingery brownie color they are kind of adorable so that's their main diet you then you've got mammals stealing carrion from polar bears or brown bears fish seal washed up or beached whale and then when they're next to the coast birds and eggs will make the majority of their diet because it's incredible eggs are incredibly rich in nutrients and they will bury any eggs that when there's a, a glut of them they'll bury them in the freezing ground so when they store these eggs basically if you store something for too long they lose their, their the amount of energy that it has it goes moldy but these eggs will store basically 90 percent of its energy after 60 days so in the depth of winter, if you remember where you kept those eggs, you can dig them up and have an incredibly energy-rich meal to put on as much fat as possible in winter. And then talking of fat and them eating as much as possible, in winter, they change their entire metabolism. As in biochemically? Biochemically, their metabolism changes. Huh. Spe- they have specific genes under positive selection, which means they are being selected for through generations. They are, they are beneficial. Yeah, they are beneficial but it alters insulin levels, glucose metabolism, basically in winter to say we're gonna store more fat as quickly as possible, and in the summer, we're going to basically just increase the metabolism to burn more fat, be more active, not just kind of storage and keep everything warm, but being able to hunt birds. So not only do they change their entire metabolism and just be almost perfectly adapted for this incredibly harsh environment, the way they hunt as you say Becca, you said earlier the diving into the snow into into the into the the dens to get these lemmings Standing
0: jump and then dive headfirst.
1: so yeah they have exceptionally good hearing. their fur foot pads make each step incredibly quiet when they're walking through snow, which means the lemmings under four to five six inches of, of snow just don't hear them coming then they pounce into the snow and they do that jump because they go up into the air and they attack silently straight down from at the top and and the lemming just doesn't see it coming and can't run away but the final thing i'll mention about these these arctic foxes is in, during this jump they always jump at the same angle as in they will always jump 20 degrees off to the east from magnetic north not to the same angle to the to the actual lemming but to the same angle in the world and all foxes do this And a 2010 study, and not much research has been done on this, interestingly. But I know both of us are quite keen on looking into quantum biology, and it's kind of got those vibes to it.
0: Quantum vibes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they, speculatively, they, they, it's, it's believed that foxes use the magnetic field to hunt. Oh, wonderful! It's kind of hard to. Explain, but I will do my best. They use the ma- yeah. I can't picture They it. use the magnetic field as a rangefinder, so to make a more accurate pounce, and that so if they always pounce at the same angle, they can get an accurate hit seven times out of ten.
0: Wow, they did seem to go to the exact perfect place when I, I watched that clip when it dived in. I just pulled out a living.
1: Especially because you can't even see where your prey is underneath the the snow at all. Yeah. When they do it the opposite way, so twenty degrees off south towards west they it's successful 6 out of 10 times but when they do it in any other angled variation it's only successful 18% of the time the wow. hunt do they know why well again it's only speculative in the reasoning behind it and i think the author of the paper would do a better job explaining it that i could and he said this in an interview to kind of make it understandable Imagine you had a flashlight attached to your belt that was pointed down at the ground at a fixed angle of 60 degrees, let's say. Okay. The beam of the flashlight would hit the ground at a fixed distance in front of you all the time. Yep. If you were trying to determine the exact location of a sound source coming from the ground in front of you, you could approach the beam... Uh, sorry. You could approach the sound until the beam was exactly superimposed on that sound source. So you believe underneath where the light is, that is where the sound is coming from. This will place you at a fixed distance from the source. And as you attack such a target again and again, you could perfect a highly stereotyped leap that precisely lands you accurately on the target.
0: I see. So you're kind of lining yourself up with where you can hear the sound coming from to be able to do that same jump every time.
1: Exactly. Yeah, you are you are angling yourself up in in relation to the magnetic field, and the sound of of where that lemming is coming from.
0: Well, wow, these scientists who figured this out. Oh my gosh!
1: It's and I think I think that's just incredible. Combining that with incredible sound, all those adaptations, and a changing metabolism depending on the season. That's just awesome.
0: And the, Do you know what that is? Hmm? It's the magic of
1: Christmas. You <laughs> <laughs> I mean well. Talking of magic, actually, and and getting onto the folklore behind it really briefly, the reason why I chose the arctic fox as a Christmas animal... Well, in winter in the arctic uh, circle, days are very short. Sometimes you only get two to three hours of of half-light, if that. So the aurora borealis is present a lot. And looking back at legend from the Inuit, they say that the aurora borealis was spirits of the dead dancing in the heavens and carrying torches to light up the world in the... the dark winter then you've got the native american anishinaabe tribe they say that the aurora is telling people no matter where they are that they're not alone in those dark nights but the most relevant of them and why i chose the arctic fox is from the finnish legends so revon the word for the aurora is directly translated meaning fox fire. And the story goes that an arctic fox runs in the heavens. It leaps and it bounds in the dark skies, chasing lemons. Uh, Lemons?
0: Lemons!
1: (laughs) Let me try that one again. So there's this arctic fox, as the story goes, which runs throughout the heavens, leaping and bounding, I'm assuming after lemmings, through the dark sky. And its tail, as it goes, brushes the tops of trees and mountains, shooting snow and ice up into the air. And when the tail does this, it glows in the heavens. And what you see is the aurora is the tail whipping up snow behind it as a green and and purple glowing, even in the darkest night. Which I think is a, a really beautiful story, which you get a long winter. That's
0: something really nice for the winter seasons. It is a really nice idea
1: it is and that is me with my arctic fox
0: that's going to take some beating i feel like my one's going to take a bit of a turn because i've chosen roosters whoa (laughs) from the heights of the arctic to (laughs) chickens so what on earth have roosters got to do with christmas if you've never heard this before you're simply not going to know. I, I actually um, have
1: no idea. Please educate me.
0: So it's, it's pretty interesting, actually. So in uh, some cultures, particularly in Spain, Bolivia, the Philippines, Venezuela and Puerto Rico, they celebrate Christmas Eve more than Christmas Day. So today...
1: Merry Christmas, you lot.
0: So if you're part of this culture, you have an early morning mass on the morning of Christmas Eve called Misa de Gallo, which <sighs> means, when translated... Rooster's mass, chicken mass.
1: Sorry, rooster. Yeah, it's more. Yeah, no. it's got more. It's Sorry, rooster- yeah.
0: <laughs> Miso de gallo sounds sounds like a right party. It sounds fantastic. So it's named after the rooster, as according to the the story, the bird was the first to announce the birth of Christ by crowing at midnight, and it's also said this is the only time a rooster has crowed this early. I'm not sure if that last part is true because i've certainly heard roosters crowing at the weirdest times. so i thought i'll have a look at why roosters crow
1: i mean we've heard i've heard robins at 2am i've certainly heard a blackbird and i've definitely heard the gulls in exeter the seagulls well common gulls they're screaming at about 3am
0: they are anyway this is this is the domestic rooster which i'm assuming it was because they were in a barn in the story uh which is gallus gallus domesticus uh, one of which is a broiler chicken. And they had already been in the Jerusalem area for around two to 3,000 years before baby Jesus was born. So that checks out. And there is a study on this from 2018 by Bennett et al. in Royal Society Open Science, where they found that broiler chickens in Jerusalem, 2,000 to 3,000
1: BC. Quick question. Quick question. Yeah. I, I knew, so chickens are the number one in terms of animal mass, the number one animal on this planet. They're, they're, they're
0: the most numerous bird. Uh, yes,
1: bird on this planet. How many, in 2018, how many chicken domestic chickens existed?
0: So the time this study came out, I don't know.
1: 23.7 billion. What? That's me done. Right, continue. That's a huge <laughs> number. It is, it is a vast amount. It is huge. Sidetrack. sorry about that the
0: broiler chickens <laughs> broiler chickens of the subspecies gallus gallus domesticus, which were in jerusalem for two thousand to three thousand years before baby jesus was born there like all domestic chickens they came from wild fowl so that's a not domestic chicken that they originally came from in the wild
1: the wild chicken
0: so these chickens and wildfowl have something called a circadian rhythm, which is kind of an internal biological clock. And lots of living things have this. It basically tells you when to go to sleep and when to wake up, among other things.
1: Most a complex organism, excluding students.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> so lots of organisms do have them, even humans, maybe not. Students! Students, yep. But for roosters these circadian rhythms allow them to know or even sense when dawn is approaching even if it's two hours away because their internal clock is telling them it's a two-hour countdown now until dawn. They then start to crow to establish dominance or mark their territory.
1: Hence the cock crowing at the dawn. Kind of deal.
0: Yes, when you typically expect it to. However. Roosters could also do it independently of their circadian rhythm. They they have been known to do it in the middle of the night if there's a threat, telling their hens to seek cover, so to protect, protect the females. Also, it's been found that bright lights can really confuse them. Um, so I guess from their point of view, seeing a bright light means either it must be morning and I don't realise, or this is a threat I don't recognise. So either way, they start crowing.
1: So if it's a busy barn slash stable with a lot of light going along, a lot of activity, you're going to annoy yes. the, the roosters.
0: Or if there's a, a road nearby and a car drives past with its lights on, you'll trigger those roosters. But sometimes, it doesn't even take that. Sometimes it's just part of their personality and some roosters are simply more vocal than others. You might just get a noisy one or a quiet one. Just a rowdy rooster. <laughs> so the rooster, if it did indeed crow on that date when baby Jesus was born, as the stories say, then firstly, yes, it very well could have done. Scientific knowledge from today says that does check out. There were chickens and roosters available in Jerusalem at that time and they could have been crowing in the middle of the night. Although it probably wasn't the only time in history that it crowed that early, I suppose it doesn't really matter. The crows still very well could have done it at that time. And I think that's just a really nice symbol to have, something really nice to celebrate. So it's a big part of some cultures at this time of year, down to that all-important and biologically really interesting crowing. So if you do celebrate this, have a great miso de gallo.
1: Uh, that is all we've got time for today on this episode of the seasonal special from the circadian rhythms of roosters crowing at midnight, as well as the arctic fox and all of the adaptations which come along with those. So, and now it's to the all important bit of the episode.
0: It's animal of the episode. It's animal of
1: the episode. So, we haven't done on the other two specials. This one is going to be uh, the the results. I shall announce in just a second are from episode three, the great animal migrations that we were talking about. So the two options were your painted lady butterflies, painted ladies on tour, the multi generational migration of yes. the butterflies, yes, as well as my saltwater crocodiles surfing across the currents in the ocean and. The winner of the vote, the most votes we've ever got actually, the winner of this vote for winning from 60% to 40% was...
0: Not a draw this time.
1: The saltwater crocodile.
0: (gasps) Oh well done! (laughs) (laughs) So that leaves us on tom two and one draw. Yeah, zero currently. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I think I've got a very strong candidate this time.
1: Okay. So I am not worried. This is the Christmas animal (laughs) of the episode, the ultimate Christmas animal.
0: Yes, I'm going to take us away with the northern saw wet owl because they are in the news recently. So these owls are really quite tiny, so much so that when people see one for the first time, they assume it's a baby, even when it's a fully grown adult. And this did cause a problem when one northern saw owl was found tucked away in the branches of the Rockefeller Center's Christmas tree in New York City this year. This has
1: to be one of the most adorable things I have ever seen in my life.
0: So before I go into the story of what happened to this owl in the, the New York Christmas tree, this species is Agolus a adi- Agolus acadius. They're really small owls. They're 22 centimetres and about 100 grams. So you could probably hold one in two hands. They're about as heavy as a bag of sugar. So they have light brown feathers with big, bright yellow eyes and white dots all over their wings and they their are white so face. they so
1: sweet and small. And they're
0: native to North America and one of the smallest animal species you can find there. They can be found in dense thickets or conifers, often at human eye level. So you can just be on a walk.
1: And they're and spying on one. you constantly. They're just small <laughs> spying owls of attitude.
0: Especially spying, because they're nocturnal and usually completely silent, so people hardly ever see them. But when they do cool, it sounds like it's a saw, like a handsaw being sharpened on a wetting stone, which was what gives it its name, the Northern Saw-Wet Owl. And they have been described as practically bursting with astute because they have these sassy little faces. Anyway, so what happened in the New York Christmas tree at the Rockefeller Center? So two people saw this owl and tucked away in the branches and thought, oh my gosh, this is a baby owl that we've accidentally brought to New York City. Is it going to be okay? So they called the Wildlife Center. He took one look at this owl and said, no, this is actually an adult. He's really hardy. Um, although he's tiny, that's their normal size. He's all okay. And I looked at some videos of him recently. They'd um, rehydrated him, given him lots of mice, as much as he could eat. And he's looking really healthy and really bright.
1: So just to get this clip, they chopped down the Christmas tree, brought it to New York, and the owl was there for the journey.
0: Yes, it travelled for three days without any Whoa. food or water. But he's absolutely fine. Had a bit of an adventure.
1: I just also had a look. They recently released him, actually. Oh, he's gone home. He's gone home. Well, actually, they are nomadic owls. They don't have a single territory. They eat all the food in one area, move on to the next area. So they took him north of New York and released him. And he was quite happy. Didn't have to take him all
0: the way back.
1: Didn't have to take him all the way back. Oh,
0: fantastic. That would have been very stressful for him, So that is
1: quite incredible that he managed to. They They are really... Yeah, really hardy, attitude-filled little, little guys. It's fantastic. If you fantastic. look
0: on our Twitter poll for voting for your favourite one of these, I have put some pictures on, um, and there is a northern wet towel on there. And,
1: yeah, so... <sighs> I don't really stand a chance against that. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. <laughs> what
0: have you chosen?
1: I have chosen the spirit bear. Ooh. So it's a subspecies of black bear in British Columbia in canada it's got this brilliant white fur it's not albino it's still got some areas of shading it it basically has this mutation of a gene called mc1r in which no melanin is produced it's recessive this gene which means basically both both parents need to have it and give it to the offspring for it to show this brilliant white fur instead of black fur as you so often see with with black bears and The babies will always imprint on the colour of the fur, so the subspecies tends to mate with its own population as opposed to going back with a a black bear. So this tiny little population in, I believe it's 210 kilometres squared, uh, there's about 500 individuals which exist in the entire world, and it's it's a stunning animal. It's unexpected. It's quiet. It walks through the forest almost like a ghost, a spirit, and... Its connection with native folklore uh, in in the end of the year in the winter period, uh, similar similar to the Christmas polar bear, which we kind of talked about in the first Christmas episode, which apparently is a thing. Uh, but it's it's definitely it, a thing. <laughs> it's it's a an unexpected different take on on what we normally expect with bears, and it's quite Dickensian in its name. At Christmas, it's the Spirit Bear, and and honestly it's an absolutely fantastic stunning example of evolution it, it's the forgotten bear of, of really like that of the coast a really good choice it is and so it's i mean it's tenuous to say the least to connect it with christmas but it, that's my christmas animal now <laughs> i Christmas <feels>
0: christmasy <laughs>
1: to me <laughs> i've connected that with my christmas and um with my christmas is my, it's my christmas animal so yeah they <laughs> are the two options you have becker's northern saw wet owl and you have my spirit
0: bear and the poll is now live on Twitter at Darwin Black Book without the S. And you can find more information about the podcast and listen to previous episodes on our website at bits.ly forward slash Darwin's
1: Thank you so much for listening. And before we go, I'd like to personally thank the British Ecological Society for helping fund the startup of this podcast. And they can be found and you can join them at the British
0: You can also find previous episodes on Spotify and on Google's podcast player.
1: And you can find more information about me at www.tomland.co.uk. And the first episode of the new year will be on the 10th of January. So see you then. And just before we go, it's almost Christmas. It's tomorrow if this goes out on time. And hopefully this should bring some solace with the current conditions. Christmas isn't cancelled no matter what the government said. Christmas is a time of rest and celebration and sure the celebration is on a smaller scale but it's still very much here and I personally intend to make the best of it. It's been a rocky one this year so a bit of a chill out is really quite appreciated. Plus it sounds cheesy but looking and, and researching planet earth and all the cool animals that it contains, all of the landscapes and the evolution and the science, it brings home that the world is a very large place. This moment in time, this event that we are in right now, it's only a blink of an eye in biological timescales. Things like this have happened before, and every single time, it's been okay. Homo sapiens are an extraordinarily resilient species. In fact, it's, it's why we're here. That includes everyone listening. It's how we've survived it may be really rough right now but i can say for sure we will find a way to adapt and we will be able to socialize again to see the world again christmas balls and traveling over summer the planet isn't done with us yet we will find a way so stick in there it's gonna be okay and merry christmas
0: merry christmas